Well, hello and welcome to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Nate Mancini. I'm one of the founders of Forefront. I'm so excited to be with all of you today. And we actually have a live studio audience today. And yeah, make yourselves known. Yes, yeah. Thank you for coming. And uh, some of you might not be familiar with my organization, Forefront Festival, so I'll just give you a little bit of a, a primer on that. Uh, Forefront Festival is a nonprofit based in Rochester, New York, and we equip Christians to pursue excellence in the arts um, and to participate with God in creativity. So today we have a very special guest on the live show, Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson. I love being called special. Thank you. It's a great <laughs> very start. Special. Very good start. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. So Jessica Hooten Wilson is a professor, author, and speaker. She is the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence at the University of Dallas. She is the author of Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which received a 2018 Christianity Today Book of the Year Award in Culture and Arts. She's written two books on Walker Percy, and most recently co-edited Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West. And I believe you have two books coming out next year, I do. Uh, so I'm excited to talk about those as well. But before we get to questions and those, um, I want to mention to those listening that we are coming to you live from the Imagination Redeemed Conference in Colorado Springs, Colorado. This is the annual conference of the Anselm Society, and they are a Colorado-based organization whose mission is a renaissance of the Christian imagination. Uh, Anselm helps people connect better to the great story through a revival of storytelling culture within the church. And this conference is being recorded, and part of it will be available online. You can learn more at imaginationredeemed.com. With that, I want to move to an icebreaker question. I'm not saying there's a lot of ice, but if there is any, we're going to break it. We're at a conference. We don't have to talk about this conference specifically, but I feel like some people love conferences. Like they love, they love the aura. They love like the interactions and like meeting relatively famous people. Um, <laughs> other people just go because it's just part of their job. It's just their job. You know, mm -hmm. they're running a booth or they're speaking or whatever. And you, I think, go to a lot of conferences. Mm -hmm. You do lectures mm -hmm. and you're speaking at a lot of different public speaking roles. So, what is your? What's your honest? Yeah. Unfiltered opinion yeah. on conferences. Conferences are my classrooms. My unfiltered opinion is that uh, a while back, maybe two or three years ago, the Lord started calling me out of the classroom more and more, and I didn't know what it meant or what it would look like, but I said yes, and it's so much fun. I don't have to grade. I get to talk to people about what actually matters to them because they came there on purpose. Yes. They're not looking to what I'm saying for any other benefit than to enjoy it, mm -hmm. that they may learn how to glorify God better. So there's this honest connection between the teacher and the quote-unquote students yes. that is really co-learning and really driven by the heart in a way that I wish the classrooms still were but they are not all that way. There are some great remnants in higher ed and there are some great classrooms. I'm at the University of Dallas. I have a great classroom that's like that. Yeah. I teach grad students who want to be there, but it's just not everywhere anymore. Yes. So that's how I feel about conferences. It's not a job, it's a vocation. That's wonderful. So um, I went to Grove City College in yeah. uh, Western PA. So we, we're very big on the humanities. Yeah. So that was excellent. Were you there when I um, spoke there? I spoke there last 
2020, right before the quarantine. Yeah, so I'm I'm actually really old. I graduated oh, 2013. Wow. Okay, so really old. Yes. Super, yeah. super <laughs> old. Yeah. So okay. uh, so maybe maybe thankfully wasn't there in 2020. <laughs> though I do wish I could have heard you speak there. Um, but I had a wonderful uh, literature professor at Dr. Messer who was. Just oh incredible. yeah, Colin and I go way Messer. back. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, Shout I love out Grove Colin. City. I hope you're listening. Yeah, um, he should be. Now you can share it with him and say, "I said your name." Yes. Pass it to everybody. Yeah, I'll be like, we talked about you on the show. <laughs> <laughs> tune, tune in to see what we said uh-huh. um, okay so now we come to the lightning round I haven't given Jessica anything about this she has zero show prep which I don't know if that's good or bad um, we come to the lightning round where I'll ask you a series of short questions okay. and you just answer them with the first thing that pops into your head Okay. so you don't have to think about it too much oh I wish all of you guys could play That'd be so much yes. fun. Yeah. Okay. That, that would be fun. Maybe maybe next time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the lightning round I feel table. like that's what I tell my kids yes. all the time. Maybe next time. Maybe that's next like time. That's like a constant yeah. mom phrase, isn't it? And it's yeah. like, come on, mom. <laughs> okay. Well, we get there when we get there. Um, so what is your favorite conference-style event to attend besides Imagination Redeemed? Oh, that that is hard. Um, yeah. Because I immediately think anything that has to do with imagination. Mm-hmm. Um Oh, wow. That is hard. Education, I guess, would be my second go-to. So getting to talk about liberal arts and education. Oh, but okay. but what about like a specific event? Like, oh, like a like a, yeah. like a named one. L- literally name it, like a specific conference or... A Catholic yeah. Imagination Conference. So that, you you know, that sounds like it's an out. But I, I really wish the church was united across the world. I hate that, yeah. you know, the invisible church and then we recognize it and if it, in its different visible entities. But I try to participate as much as I can in um, both the Eighth Day Institute, which is like the Orthodox Redeemed okay. Imagination, yep. and then this one, which is Redeemed Imagination Protestant, and then the Catholic Imagination <laughs> Conference. So they're all divided, unfortunately but I, I love doing all three. Yeah, that's great. So it seems ironic to ask this one because we're sitting in the Glenary Castle, yeah. which is incredible. Mm-hmm. But what is the most beautiful place you've ever visited? In the world? Anywhere you've visited. Wow. Well, Florence has my heart. I've lived in Florence twice. I love oh, wow. Florence, Italy. Uh, so just the thought of Florence fills me from toe to head with joy. That's great. Uh, so I love imagining it and thinking about it. Beautiful. Okay. We're moving to the arts. Has mm-hmm. there been a movie adaptation of a book that you loved that you felt really captured the spirit of the book? Oh, well. people, people are going to hate me for saying this. Lord of the Rings. I think Lord That's, of the Rings yeah. is a better, yes. the films are better than the book. And I love, oh, wow. I do, okay. to the extent that, and I was talking about this with um, somebody earlier, to the extent that Tolkien's literary mastery, he has a mastery over sentence and crafting character. Yes. But as far as pacing and story, if he could have had Peter Jackson help him with pacing, <laughs> people wouldn't be so, especially because I teach that book, right? They, yeah. Students get so bogged down in the first one. They're like the old forest. Come it just on. takes what is, forever. Yeah. And then there's the digression with Tom Bombadil and yes. students are like, what is happening? And, and it's hard to get be like, wait for it. Second and third are going to be really good. Just wait for it. Yeah. Whereas in, you know, the Lord of the Rings, um, film adaptation, yes. the pacing is in control the it whole is. time. So we get right in that sense, the films are really well done. Yes. They capture the spirit. So I love that. I love the films too. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you love those. Okay. <laughs> the other side, what's a movie adaptation that failed to capture the spirit of a book you love? Oh, Percy Jackson. Oh. Percy Jackson was such a downer. I love the Percy Jackson series. I read it with my kids all the time. I love good children's literature. And yeah. they tried to make him a you know rebellious individualist. That's not a hero. 
that's not an ancient hero. And so, you know, Percy Jackson in the stories is an ancient type hero in which he yeah. tries to do what is right. And you don't have that at all in the film. So yeah. that's just a lost one. Getting rid of the ancient heroes. Yeah. Um, which musician or singer-songwriter do you listen to most often? Hildegard von Bingen. Wow. <laughs> I listen to Hildegard von Bingen when I work. And I stole that because Susanna Clark did when she, when she did Paranesi. And I was like, I didn't even know you could do that. So she was listening to Hildegard von Bingen on Spotify when she wrote Paranesi. And so suddenly wow. I'm Googling Spotify. I'm like, okay, now I'm going to be listening to Hildegard von Bingen on Spotify. And that's what I do all the time. I love it. That, that, is, <laughs> that is a very Dr. Jessica who's Wilson answer. Like, I, I've never had anybody say that before. That's my favorite um, Spotify listen. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, if you could put one piece of original visual art in your home, oh. and this is regardless of its current location yeah. or price or availability, oh, yeah. uh, what would that be? Ruo. Uh, the the crucifixion of Jesus of Ruo yeah. is just amazing. Amazing. Um, so yes, that's a convicting piece that I would love to own. Maybe someday. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> but I'll just keep going to museums. And it's gorgeous. Okay. Who and, and maybe this is an easy one for you. Who are one or two authors writing today mm. who give you hope for the future of fiction literature? Ooh, fantastic! Christopher Beha. Mm. I love Christopher Beha's novels. So okay. the index of self-destructive acts, so great. Um, and Layfinger is the other one who comes to mind yes. right off the bat. Uh, Virgil oh, Wander. Like and, uh, oh, yeah. So good. I got to have Leaf on the show. Leaf, yeah. if you're listening, come on the show. <laughs> we talked about you on the show. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'm trying. What was your hardest book to write? Mm. Oh, that's difficult. Um the Walker, Percy, and Dostoevsky one. Mm. It just took so many years of research. It's my most academic book, so it's the one that no one reads. Everything um, has to be cited. Yeah, to, yeah. It's, so it was the heart. You have to get permissions for everything you quote, because most of it is archives, so it's things that people have never seen before. Yes. I will say it was fun in that sense. I felt like Sherlock Holmes. Like, I'm digging, right, through all of his letters, and yeah. I was reading all of his books to see where he marked Dostoevsky's chapters and taking notes on how Percy read Dostoevsky. Yes. So for me as a scholar, it's my most scholarly book, and, you know, that's why it makes zero dollars, but it, but it was really worth doing yeah. well. And I think in some sense I was able to prove to myself that I could do this really scholarly academic book that I had always envisioned myself doing yes. when I finished grad school. So Right. Like kind of a landmark work that you're, you're glad you did it. Yes, yeah. I am. Mm -hmm. Okay. Could you describe in a sentence, what is the scandal of holiness? This In a sentence, it is that holiness scandalizes our comfort because we think we have in mind the things mm. of God, especially when we're in church or when we're behaving well. And most often we're more like Peter, in which Christ has to say, get behind me, Satan. Mm. You are a scandal. You are a stumbling block to me, a scandal on. That's what it literally means. Mm. Um, because you have in mind the things of earth and not the things of God. Yes. I'm just going to sit here for a moment because that was very <laughs> profound and I'm about to give a complete about face here and it's Matthew Pierce's fault. Um, oh my goodness, we're going <laughs> to jump from holiness to Matthew Pierce? Exactly, <laughs> yes. Um, so, so I may have reached out to a few folks for some questions. Uh, one that I have here is a lightning round question from Matthew Pierce, who is the author of <laughs> Evangelical Thought Leader, The Liturgy of Radically Engaging the Culture of Paradigm Shifts. Have you guys read this? <laughs> It is the funniest 
book you will read. It's like $4 on Kindle. You have to buy it. It's basically mocking all of the church's sacred cows when it comes to social media and the life of faith. It is so funny. My husband and I read it out loud to each other. It's hilarious. So that's why I'm already laughing. Yes. Okay. Yes. So Matthew sent in several questions. I'm just going to read one. Uh, the other ones, I don't know if they were safe for podcasts, but <laughs> if you want to read them later, you're welcome I do. to. That's um, great. So, so Matthew asks, as a follow-up to your previous answer, mm-hmm. isn't the real scandal of holiness that animals aren't required to confess their sin? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so fantastic. You know, I'm a little St. Francis-y in my um, way of viewing that. So even last night, talking about the imagination redeemed and Ryan did that awesome story of creation, fall, redemption. But he said, creation wasn't finished. And then we had to add human beings. I'm like, the animals were there. They're preaching. They're, they're singing praises. They're like, yeah. There's yeah. something there that's, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily the like, pinnacle. We're the stewards, right? We're there mm-hmm. to take care of everything that we're supposed to love around us. So yeah. yeah, so I, I appreciate the question because I have a love for animals. I talk to animals. I talk to trees. I very much enjoy okay. thinking of creation that way. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. So, Matthew, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> well, he's, now he's going to make fun of me for talking to trees, and that's fine. I don't mind. Talking trees. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to move to the main interview portion here, and uh, you've talked about how Flannery O'Connor said that, uh, quote, because she's a Catholic, Mm -hmm. she had to be an artist. Ooh. Did I say that or did she say that? Well, she said that, but you quoted her saying that. Okay. Yeah. We're on better ground because then I can say it's authoritative versus if I said it, I might argue with myself. Okay. okay. Well, you can argue with it if you want. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, But from your perspective, why is it not only say, justifiable, but Mm -hmm. also in some way essential that Christians participate in the arts? Because we're created as creatures to create, Mm -hmm. right? All of that's linked in our identity. If, I mean, I really do believe that if you are not creating, oftentimes you're destroying and you may not recognize it, but we are consuming and more often, you know, especially food is an easy metaphor. So let me go with food, right? How often do we grow and participate in food's creation? How often do we prepare even the things that we eat rather than being fed? And so if we live a completely, um, I I don't want to say parasitic, but if we we live a life that's total consumption all the time, Mm -hmm. then we're not living up to our calling. We are supposed to be creating. Now that might be gardening, preparing food, that might be serving food to other people. There's lots of ways creation can look, but we have to be making. We're makers. Yes. Right? And that's part of our identity as human beings that we've, we've lost. Yes. Yeah, I, I um, got the chance to talk to Mako Fujimura recently. Yeah. He's incredible. <laughs> uh, love, love his book, Art yep. and Faith, The Theology yep. of Making. Um, and I asked him, like... He says, you know, everybody should be making. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, I and I asked him, you know, well, aren't there, there, there are these different things, these like three pathways, N.T. Wright, like mm-hmm. there's the proclamation of the gospel, the pursuit of justice, mm-hmm. and the creation of beauty. Um, do you have to do all those things? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's like, we are makers. Yeah. Like that's just like, it's just part of who we are. Like you can't escape it, um, yeah. which is basically what, what you said too. Well, if you think about it, even in those categories, like truth, goodness, beauty. Yeah. So you make things 
for, for goodness. Like you're, you're making, you're acting as we've talked about here, like your life is art, your life Mm -hmm. is story. So there is that process of making that is part of each of those activities. Yes. Right. It's, it's not, it's not that that is separate. It's not that yes. NT Wright is saying something different than Marco right. in that instance. They're all separate things, yeah. It's making underlies all yes. of that. Mm-hmm. And I would say, I mean, most of um, my great ideas are merely like I'm just imitating and drawing from everybody. You're imitating I, the right people. <laughs> right, yeah. And so I'm yeah. I'm reading Mako. I'm reading O'Connor. I'm reading NT Wright. Yes. Um, and I'm just making part of them my vocabulary for how to understand these things. Yes, I love that. So I called this conversation uh, Literature for the Artist, How the Stories of the Past Inform Our Creativity in the Present. That's a bit of a broad label for this. This is going to be a wide-ranging conversation. But to get to that point, um, your focus uh, among the arts, I think, is on literature. Mm-hmm. And you've talked about how, um, even at this conference, you know, how literature has enormous value for spiritual formation, mm-hmm. like forming us as people, um, that we're not just reading literature to get ideas or techniques, um, but to be formed mm-hmm. and to, like you said this morning, receive grace from the text. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, artists, and I think writers in particular, have so many things to learn from the great authors in terms of how to write and how mm-hmm. to tell stories well. So when, when an artist or a writer, uh, particularly who's a Christian, reads a classic, mm-hmm. should they be reading it differently than anybody else would? Um, or is there something specific that maybe they should be focused on that would be unique? That's a good question. So I think it's a matter of multiple readings. Yes. So no, I thought you might say, (laughs) well, I'm thinking back to my Walker Percy Dostoevsky book and maybe because you brought it up, I I would not maybe thought of it otherwise, but, uh, Walker Percy enjoyed Dostoevsky. Mm. So his first reading was that he loved these things. Now, when he tried to write fiction, he did not the first novel, the moviegoer, he didn't purposefully imitate Dostoevsky until he ended it and realized that that's exactly what he had done the whole time Mm. because he had been saturated with that story, right? With knowing notes from underground, with making it part of his imagination. When he wrote the moviegoer, that invention came from what he had memorized. And so then that's why he writes this epilogue as a tribute to Dostoevsky, acknowledging that influence. Mm -hmm. And then going forward, he did both. So he'd already read The Idiot. He'd already taught The Idiot. Now he took The Idiot and he used it and analyzed it and said, use this in my next novel, use this in my next novel. And so it's a, it's a both. And I mean, you know, all theologians answer that way. Right. But it is a both. And you enjoy, and then you can use the Mm -hmm. imagination and then the intellect, but those things are not dichotomous. They're connected and related in the way that we read. Yes. That's great. I think we, we talked about it similarly in filmmaking. I'm a video producer for my okay. day job. Okay. Um, and I've talked to like my, my cinematographer about this kind of thing. And, and it's like we, we try to enter a film just to watch it and mm-hmm. to enjoy it and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, l- let it tell us its story. Yes. And, and not to be just looking at all the nitty gritty details. Right. How did they do that shot? You know, <laughs> but then when you watch it again, you mm-hmm. have that chance to kind of delve in. So is that kind of what you're saying? For, Abs- for absolutely. And that's yeah. what Flannery would always say is when, when she would go and read a story to the public and she preferred that over talking about her stories, right? Uh, yes. She would go and read and do a reading because yeah. she thought that was more beneficial than her analyzing it. Mm. So it wasn't that the analysis was inappropriate. 
It's that it was second. And you know what T.S. Lewis says about first and second things, right? Yeah. First things have to come first to stay first. Yeah. Second things have to come second to stay second. If you try to make second things into first things, you'll lose both of them. Mm-hmm. So if you enter a work of art not first to enjoy the work of art and to use it first, you're going to miss what's there. Yes. So here's kind of a, a question that I think gets to um, your work personally. So <laughs> you talked about how... Um, again, even, even while we've, we've been here and in some of the, your past lectures, how like j- loving the people near you and like mm-hmm. being a loving person is super important to focus on. And, and you've talked previously about how, um, focusing on people in your local community, mm-hmm. the people next door, that that is of vital importance. Um, and that's like, it's both harder and more important than trying to like love people over the internet. Um, yeah. And yet, I think you personally, as, as an author and a thinker, you've reached people from all over, and you even have a, a great Twitter presence. Mm-hmm. Somehow, you're on Twitter mm-hmm. and kept your soul. So, <laughs> so, so how, how I, I, you... I'm not dead yet, so we'll see. <laughs> yes. Well, I, 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 I trust that it's going to be okay, but, but, but how do you do that? How do you kind of have this, like yeah. the focused love for the people around you, but then you've also kind of cultivated an online presence at the same time? Yeah. I think it's keeping things in its place. So Twitter has a place. It's just a very unimportant place in my life. So I, you know, I, I participated. It's a third or fourth or fifth. Right. It's kind of like posting your syllabus online, mm. right? There's a place in it in the classroom. So it tells everyone what's going on yes. and what's happening. And they can look to that to see what's happening mm-hmm. throughout, like what you recommend reading, what you recommend doing, Right. Your I, your objectives for the class, what you're right. It gives that kind of profile. Yeah, table stakes. Like but can the syllabus it. replace the classroom? N- no, it can't. And so, so there's something where it keys you in, it cues you in. But at the end of the day, where your life is being lived is not in the syllabus. Mm-hmm. Your life is being lived when you take what you read from the syllabus. It recommended the Book of the Dun Cow, for example, yeah. right? And said, read these pages. You go read them, and then you practice them with everybody around you. Yes. But you're very thankful that that syllabus existed so that it could point you on what to read and how to read it. Right. So I'm hoping that my online presence is doing that, but I don't want it to ever replace my day-to-day interaction with other people. Right. So can I add one more thing on that that I just thought of too? Like, um, the other thing is the syllabus, (laughs) the people who read the syllabus, they don't practice their love for you even by reading and commenting on the syllabus. (laughs) So... You know, the people who read the stuff that I write or are responding to it, the best way to love me has to be in community with me where they get to see all the ways that I'm wrong often, where they get to see all the ways that I fail, where they get to see that the heart is a den of vipers. And the people who are able to love me knowing that is a different kind of love than the people who love my work, which is a a gift that is separate from me. Does that make sense? And so you can love the gift and I love the gift. I'm very thankful that God gave me that gift. Um, But I praise the author of the gift and that's not me. Um, I need to be loved and known in a completely different way than whatever gift I've received. Yes. So that, that's kind of utmost importance is the personal interaction, Mm -hmm. the personal love. And then beneath that, Yes, you should read my books. Um, well, <laughs> but then, but then beneath that, yeah. even is 
the syllabus and Twitter that, yep. that, that point yep. to the books and to the other books people should be reading. It's like, yeah. those are just... <laughs> you, just you just created a really good pyramid. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the way of looking at it. So Twitter may be unlocking that door to that pyramid. Yeah, you're yeah. kind of like laying out the clues for people to yes. follow. And yes. Now you yeah. should go to your local bookstore, buy this book, <laughs> read it, and then talk about it in your local community. Yes, because <laughs> yes, okay. it's like having those conversations, right? Yeah. Right. So, now we come to my favorite portion of the show, okay. which is audience questions. And I know we do have a live studio audience, um, and hopefully we have time for some live studio oh, audience questions great. if you have them. But I do have some other questions from people over the internet, but people who I think that you know and <laughs> oh, love, okay. um, some friends, colleagues, um, people who are familiar with your work, that okay. sort of thing. Yeah. So this will be fun. So <laughs> these are not my questions. These are their questions. Okay. This is a question from Dr. Jennifer Ann Frey. Uh, she's an associate professor of philosophy at USC and host of the podcast Sacred and Profane Love. Yeah. And Dr. Frey asks, what is the difference between reading and reading well? Hmm. And how can we get people to read well or at mm -hmm. least read better? Fantastic. Um, well... Reading isn't talking about reading text, which I would also differentiate from reading the world or reading people, because okay. I think that the practices of reading text and books can teach you how to read people if you're doing them well, mm. and they can teach you how to read the world if you're doing it well, right? I mean, this is why um, Jesus says, like, you adulterous generation, you know how to read the sky and tell the weather, but for some reason you can't read the scripture. Yeah. I also think if you're practicing reading the scripture, you can read the spiritual signs of the times, right? You can read this, the spiritual reality around you, but it's, it's just training you to read differently. Yes. So I would say one of the keys to reading well is the virtue of reading, the virtuous practice. So we talked about that a little bit this morning, but these, mm -hmm. these ideas of charity and humility that are practices that we need to adopt. I think second is this understanding of the senses or the layers of reading. Okay. Too often we're only taught the literal way of reading. So what is the surface level? And then we don't read for the figurative or the spiritual reading of things. And then lastly would yes. be the moral question. If the spiritual and literal are true, what is my moral responsibility to live differently? Yes. So there's three senses that the medievals recognized in scripture that would have all three. And we too often just stick with the literal. And the problem mm -hmm. with that is as simple as saying like, God is a lion. If you're reading that literally, you're going to have issues. Right? C.S. Lewis is like, well. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so you have to read literally, but you also have to read spiritually. Yes. And I think we have failed in, in both areas, both teaching the virtue of reading, but also teaching that there's several different layers of reading. Yes. And yes, is that sorry. like, do you see that as a progression or is that like a simultaneous dance? You mean the layers. On. It's yeah, a dance. It's absolutely yeah. a dance. And that's why I say humility precedes it because yeah. some things can be read both literally and spiritually and morally. Mm -hmm. Some things can only be read spiritually. Yes. Like God is a lion because he's not actually a lion, right? Literally. Skip the literal and move on. <laughs> yeah, right. And in that instance, yeah. but there are some things that if we, but we, we still have to go ad literam to the word. I mean, mm -hmm. why, why lion? Yes. What does it what, mean? What does that mean? What does it show? So you still have to process the literal of the word lion and why that's being used for spiritual understanding of who God is. Yes. But at the same time, if we, if we don't have that humility to try to understand in that way, we're going to make the text mean whatever fits our current way of reading. Right. And that becomes very problematic in reading scripture, especially. Absolutely. 
So next, I have a question from Dr. Mark Bauerlein. This is super fun. <laughs> this is fun. He's the professor of English at Emory University and senior editor at First Things Journal. Speaking of First Things. All these smart people. Uh, yes. He wrote a blurb uh, for Jessica's book, Giving the Devil His Due. And uh, Dr. Bauerlein asks, how do you respond to people who equate Western civilization with white supremacy or mm. patriarchy or imperialism? <laughs> I have to apologize. I have to apologize to Wayne. Wayne just heard me do this 20-minute spiel on this that's coming out with Colson Center called What Would You Say? So if you want to see my response, there's a video, What Would You Say, when people say exactly what Bowerline just said. Okay. I can give the short answer. Now it's the short version. Here's the short version, but if you want to see it, I do. I actually prepare for this question. Um, so the short answer is, here's three different things to remember. One, you cannot erase the past to create a better f future. It's impossible, right? The, the legacy that we are built on, we can't erase it or we will just all fall down. Yeah. Um, second, we have to understand writers within their time and place. Mm -hmm. They existed within a different time and place than us. We cannot force them into our 21st century mindset. We're going to miss what they were doing and what they were thinking. It doesn't mean we excuse the sins of the past and hopefully we can learn from them. But at the same time, if we don't understand that those sins were not even available to their paradigm or their way of seeing, we're going to yeah. miss the good that's there. Yes, right? and interesting how we yeah. do that with scripture. Like we know to kind of go to the context in scripture and say, what was their cultural context? Right, right. But we often fail to do it with other forms of literature. Absolutely. We forget that everybody's a sinner creating, right? I mean, just we forget all the time. Um, that's why humility, again, is so important. Yeah. And I would say third, um, Western tradition or any tradition, I would say the human tradition. Uh, the human tradition is a living tradition. It's not a static list. You don't, you don't hand on a pack of books to the next person. Yeah. You live certain books that continue to deserve being read mm. and lived. So the tradition can always be changing, which is why we're realizing there were a lot of great women and persons of color that in their time and place, according to those prejudices, were not lifted up. Mm -hmm. So they weren't read. They weren't less than yeah. the male writers that were reading them. Now, some people argue, Karen Swallow Pryor argues, for example, because some of those women didn't have the same education, they may not be as good. Um, I, I, I get that. I would From still refute that. Yeah. I would still refute that and say, in the same way that Peter and John were uneducated and somehow received a prophetic vision and they were able to walk into the Sanhedrin and mm. speak prophetic truth, I think we can look back and find women and persons of color who spoke things beyond their own registry and beyond their own educated ability, yes. right? I don't believe education is, especially a um, formal education, is the key to knowing yeah. everything there is about like the a world, right? For saying anything <laughs> Absolutely. Profound, yeah. So I think yeah. we can look look back and see that women, especially, um, because mm -hmm. that's, that's what I know the most about, but also in the Eastern tradition, also South American writers, African writers, and we have missed out on what they can add to the conversation because of some yes. of those prejudices that we inherited. Yes. So. Well, that's great. So Dr. Bowerline, that was the Cliff's Notes version. <laughs> if you want the full version. Go to the Colson Center and Go see. to the Colson Center. There's say. a 20 minute yeah. dance. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, that was excellent. Thank you. Next, we have a question from Eric Schumacher. Eric is an author and hymn writer. He recently co-authored the book, Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women, mm -hmm. which I think is a good follow-on yeah, to, so to what yeah. you just said. Mm -hmm. uh, Eric asks, should scholars pursue excellence as storytellers? Ooh. How can writing beautiful fiction supplement their scholarly nonfiction? Oh, absolutely. Well, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about 
Lewis writing the abolition of man yes. and then turning it into the fiction yes. in that hideous strength. Mm-hmm. I do, I do believe that stories can be powerfully transformative. Then on the other side, you read that abolition of man and it helps unpack the weirdness and craziness of the parable that takes place in that hideous strength. So if more scholars were able to do that, I wouldn't recommend scholars all practice gifts that they don't have. And so I I do believe that there are sometimes separate calls in which you can't have a scholar storyteller. Um, I don't want to read N.T. Wright's fiction. (laughs) <laughs> so I can't, I don't know what that would look I'm like, sorry, Tom. I'm sorry, Dr. Wright, if you're listening. <laughs> <I'm sorry>. uh... <laughs> I just, I'm not sure what that would look like. Um, and, but myself, you know, and Eric is one of those people too. We hope to be writing fiction that comes out yeah. of our scholarship and that we can tell good stories. You know, I my background is creative writing. I love yeah. telling good stories. And I found that my scholarship is able to speak to more people because I don't write like an academic for academics. I write like a storyteller. Yes. And that's what I, I hope to do. That's where my talent is. And I hope that I can also maybe write fiction the way Eric writes fiction right. um, as well. So I don't know if you've read Eric's fiction, but my last name is yet. his novella. And that's a beautiful novella as well as reading worthy. But yeah. Oh, that's great. I'll yeah. have to check it out. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminded me of, like, Andrew Peterson, of course, who's yes, writing yeah. Feather Saga and stuff like that. Well, and there's lots of people um, that have done this. I, I was actually, um, after Eric and I spoke about this question recently, yeah. I started asking, who are the people that did this? And you realize, like, Umberto Eco did this. A lot of people. Vladimir Nabokov, uh, David Foster Wallace. Right. And so there, Marilyn Robinson, there are a lot of writers who were able to be both a scholar and uh, fiction. So yes, Wendell Berry, <laughs> I can't forget Berry. Cool. So don't necessarily go out and write a hit fantasy series, but <laughs> if you, you don't have give, the it, talent. give it a shot if you have the talent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We have a question from Dr. Stephen Little. He's a tutor of English yeah. and literature. Dr. Little asks, what is fundamentally different about literature after Christ? In other mm. words, does Jesus and the Incarnation transform literature or make new forms of literature possible? I say yes and no. I just, I'm sorry, I do that every time. I don't mean to. Um, but Never ask advice of the L's for the <laughs> save of the yes and no. <laughs> I think we know more after Christ how to look for Christ in literature. Yes. But if you look back at the stories, because Christ has always been. Mm-hmm. Right, So in his particular Jesus Christ incarnation is different than talking about Christ who always was. So if you read the Old Testament, for example, which takes place before Christ, you see Christ all over the story. Yeah, Christ Christ. from the very beginning. Yes, absolutely. Christ is at the beginning. Christ is in Moses. And if God is authoring all of history, then Christ is also all over pagan literature from Mm -hmm. the past. There's a reason uh, G.K. Chesterton says something like this in Everlasting Man, in which he said, if God's writing history, he did it very well to write the Greek and Romans as predecessors to the birth of Christ, Mm. because it laid this foundation in addition to the Hebrew world that could both understand, both the Gentiles and Hebrews could understand who Christ was Yes. because he was authoring. So he revealed himself directly in the Old Testament and he reveals himself through creation and through the Holy Spirit and through the art of the Greeks and Romans, right? Both in preparation that they could adopt Jesus and Jesus would then, you know, spread out through the early Western world. Right. Right. So I think that you can find Christ both in the previous stories and in the later stories. Yes, Absolutely. Okay, we have a question from uh, someone 
I just absolutely love yeah. Dr. Benjamin Myers. Um, Dr. Which Myers, Benjamin Myers? Because there's two of them. This is, this is the Benjamin Myers who is a professor of literature and English at Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Baptist okay, University. Yeah. Um, he was the former poet laureate of Oklahoma. Uh, Dr. Myers came to our 2017 Forefront Festival, oh, and so cool. we got to know him then. And he's just such such an incredible. Ben, ben and I are good friends. We're yes. very we're close in region, so we're close yes. in contact. <laughs> I, I thought you probably were. Yeah. I didn't know for yeah. sure, but I know that you you and he both uh, spoke at the Oklahoma uh, Baptist Conference. Yeah. So yeah. So he asks a great question: Should the Christian writer today have a different relationship with the non-Christian works of the more distant past, pagan authors like Homer or mm. Ovid? Mm-hmm from the relationship he or she has with post-Christian or secular writers in modernity or post-modernity. In other words, is there a difference in the Christian experience of reading Virgil and the Christian experience of reading, say, Samuel Beckett? Interesting. That's a tough question. Um, so Ben wrote a great book, Poetics of Orthodoxy, mm. in which you get to kind of unpack some of these ideas. I think if you're having the same reading practices with both, you should be able to find what's true and good and beautiful in both. I think of the relationship with the text in, you know, the Aristotelian like triangle. I'm wishing we had like a whiteboard right now in which you have author and and reader and text Mm -hmm. in this tension with one another. And at any time that you approach a text, you have to recognize the author Right? And what the author's intent was. But that doesn't take over your reading experience. Mm-hmm. But it's going to inform it. And so if you understand Virgil's intent with the Aeneid, it is going to inform how you read the Aeneid. Sure. If you know what Beckett's intent is, right? With right, So if he's writing in a post-Christian, intentionally heretical perspective, mm-hmm. it's going to inform our reading Versus someone like Virgil, who for some reason and somehow might have been waiting for a Messiah, is a different way of reading. Um, But then you also look at the text and what is actually there. Because we believe in the ability for writers to say things that they themselves didn't even know were true. So Beckett still has that possibility as much as Virgil was able to point to Christ without meaning to in right. his text, right? So that's he, that part of the triangle, like distinct from the author is the text itself, the text itself. which may have things that the author didn't intend. Right. Yeah. And that's available to us. And then lastly, you as a reader, and that's where we've already spoken about humility and the virtues of a reader that yeah. are necessary to be able to see all those. So I'm not going to uplift only my reader's response. Do I like Beckett or not? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it true or good or not. Well, we don't do that. Um, but at the same time, we have to understand ourselves and what we're bringing to the text. If we have a certain letter, level of charity, towards the text. We might find things in the text that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. So it depends on us as a reader. So I think keeping that tension always with those three points is necessary. Mm -hmm. So there's a difference in how you might read those authors, Mm -hmm. but there's value in both. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We have a question from Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Who we threw some shade on earlier. I love, uh, love Karen. I can disagree and love people simultaneously. I know that doesn't happen on Twitter, but in real life that does happen. Well, you but, can love people but, you disagree yes, with. Even on Twitter with people like you and Karen, it can happen. <laughs> um, so Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, also known as Notorious KSP, she is an author and research professor of English, Christianity, and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. One of her recent books is On Reading Well, Finding the Good Life Through Great Books. And Dr. Pryor asks, 
What do Catholic writers like Flannery mm. O'Connor have to teach entrenched Protestants like me? <laughs> oh my goodness. You, you know, the other day she was on um, a podcast that I listened to, Anchored. Do you ever listen to Anchored podcasts? Oh, I haven't. I oh, should, so though. it's for classical, if you do classical education stuff. And so, he, uh, nice. so Jeremy had her on and she was like, why do the Catholics have all the good fiction? And, um, and in some sense, yep. there, there is a lot of truth to that. There is. There's now. There's a resurgence more and more to Protestants writing fiction well, and that is happening more. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the reason, the, a large part of the reason why was going back to the Reformation. So you know, not to make the Reformation um, a, a problem, but you can see problems that happened at the Reformation, sure. and some of those problems have to do with um, throwing out art. Uh, in a large majority, and, yeah. right? This, these representations of God that became questionable, um, mm-hmm. our own sinful and fallenness. So can we be trusted to write great stories if yeah. we ourselves are so depraved, yeah. right? So there's some things that theologically came out of the Reformation that were not part of the Catholic mm-hmm. theology. Mm-hmm. And so Catholic theology continued creating with a lot of freedom within they just a community. Went and kept exactly. And, so yeah. they kept creating art, they kept telling stories, whereas we hit the pause button in the church in the Protestant culture. And so for 500 years, we've been very afraid yeah. of art, of what it means and what it's doing. And so then that's what you see a lot of Protestant, I would say, quote unquote, artists become very secular. Mm-hmm. In, in those centuries, In the Beauty of Holiness is a great book by David Lyle Jeffrey about the art world and what this okay. looked like in the art world. But what ended up happening for a lot of artists is they had, they had to reject their faith because these, this either or was created. Yes. Either you love the church or you do your art. Yes. And they chose the art because it was so much a part of who they were and there was no place for it in the church. Right. And we're trying to, to overcome that. So what do Catholics have to say then to the entrenched Protestants? Um, they have to say that the Holy Spirit is available for creating art and that we should embrace that, right? Um, that we, we should love art. I mean, Flan- like you said, you quoted Flannery, yeah. because I'm a Christian, I'm a novelist, right? We should go back to some of the things that O'Connor bravely said and did. We should read Mystery of Manners, where she talks to everyone, to the whole church, about what it means to be a Christian maker of art sure. and maker of good things. And, and then we can also make within our own tradition make those great stories. So Leif's a great example. Mm-hmm. Frederick Beekner, Godric, fantastic. Um, so there are a lot of Protestants as well who create great art, and we can read their stories too. Yes. But we need to uplift them and by their, by their, by their art. And that is completely different than the kind of Protestant storytelling that we may have been used to that was more of the morals or the, the didactic fables or something. Right, yeah. What, what is useful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I love what you said about not tearing apart those things of, of faith and art, right? Mm-hmm. That like, we don't have to retreat to the secular art world and leave behind our faith yeah. to be, to be artists. That's like, maybe, maybe like the founding principle of forefront was that, which was, wow. which was authentic faith and excellent art don't have to be mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. And just like the tragedy of artists leaving the church. Yeah. Um, when or it's the... like, you can create beauty yes. and, and do it for the glory of God and 
That's yeah. good. And I would say, or the tragedy of people who are afraid to do their art well. Exactly. Because it would mean getting messy and dealing with mysteries that they don't have answers for. Yes. And that also makes Protestants very fearful, right? Oh, yeah. We don't want mystery what, or right. subtlety or darkness or yeah. any of that. So then yeah. they write the kind of fiction that becomes problematic, too. I mean, I used yeah. to be a judge for Christian Today's Fiction Award. And, like, I, I had to stop because a lot of the things I was reading was, you know, my son was hooked on marijuana, can you get hooked on, was hooked on marijuana at 17, and, and then he became a Christian, everything's okay again. I'm like, this isn't a novel. This isn't this a isn't, story. This isn't a story. <laughs> um, and so we have to be careful of creating that kind of work, too, yes. that just oversimplifies exactly. our problems and oversimplifies yeah. evil. That was um, one of the first things that drew me to, to Ben Myers, actually, was he wrote this article about avoiding sentimentality and Ooh, cynicism. Yeah. That's and good. I was just like, that's so good. Uh-huh. Like, if we could avoid sentimentality and cynicism and find this way of beauty that is neither of those things, yes. that would be so good. Yeah, well, that's Flannery O'Connor, too, yeah. right? She says, most people want to see, think faith is an electric blanket when it's actually the cross. Yes. That's going to produce a different kind of fiction. Yes. A, a godly type of fiction. Mm-hmm. So, coming off of this, we're talking about, hey, it's okay for art to be a little bit dark, a little bit depressing. Yeah. We have a question from, from one uh, Dr. Russell Moore. He is a, a public theologian at Christianity Today. He happens to be endorsing Jessica's next book, The Scandal of Holiness, which is very exciting. So Dr. Moore asks, As someone who has had his life transformed by the Brothers Karamazov, I am maddened when people tell me they find his work depressing. How do we help people to see the value in literature, including what seems at first glance to be dark? Absolutely. You know, I was teaching, uh, I think it was something as simple as George Herbert. Mm. And a student said, I was taught in my church, we're not supposed to focus on dark and sad things because Jesus has come. And I thought, well, then why do we read the story of the Passion? Why do we celebrate Good Friday? Why? I mean, our whole faith is built on a premise mm-hmm. that darkness precedes light. Yeah. From Genesis to Revelation is the darkness precedes the light. Mm-hmm. Right? And so the idea that you that you would run away from the darkness as, to, as though it doesn't exist, could you even acknowledge what the light was? Yes. I don't know if other people do this, but during Advent you turn off all the lights and you light you have the kids light the candles and you talk about what light is in the midst of the darkness. In no way in that situation are you praising what's dark. Mm -hmm. You're praising what's light because of what's dark, right? And I think that's the difficulty that people have when they read something like Dostoevsky. They get so focused on the darkness. Mm -hmm. Flannery O'Connor quotes Wyndham Lewis, who wrote, um, he he says, when I'm talking about the rot in the hill, it's not because I love rot. Because I love the hell. (laughs) Like, I don't want the rot to be there. It doesn't belong there. So we have to have this perspective that by looking at the dark things is never a cell, or for Christians it's not. It is not a celebration of darkness. It is not a celebration of violence. It's not a celebration of suffering. It's an acknowledgement of the suffering because only by acknowledging the suffering can you have the victory over suffering, praise God, by Jesus Christ. It doesn't make sense without that. Yes. It's almost like we take our 
whatever modern Christian feeling about how things should go and we put it on God and that then makes us not understand why would God have done this? Why would mm-hmm. God have done that? How mm-hmm. could things be this way? And it's like if we if we went back and we started with how did God do things, yeah. we have this storytelling God who takes us through the darkness and into the light. And it's like, well, if we start there, then everything makes a lot more sense. Well, if you look back at it, and again, this takes, you have to be reading scripture all the time, right? But you, you read the Pharisees and Jesus says, yeah. woe to you. You think you wouldn't have stoned the prophets? Really? Because yeah. you're about to do it again. And so the the reality is that we do not want to see ourselves as capable of crucifying Christ. And stories like Flannery O'Connor, they hold up a reflection that says you're capable of this level of darkness, Mm -hmm. right? And that doesn't have to be the end of the story. And in most great literature, especially, it's always pointing to a better end of the story. It's it's they're they're comedies in the highest sense, Mm -hmm. and that they point to the beatific vision. They point to Jesus redeeming that part of us that that crucified him. The Savior that says, forgive them. Yes, you know, yes, they point us. to that. That's the end of the story. So I have one more um, audience question that was sent in. This is from Dr. Ralph C. Wood. My favorite person in the entire world. Amazing. Yeah. I'm glad we're ending with his then. I love him. He is a professor of theology and literature at Baylor University and author of many books, including Tolkien Among the Moderns, And he wrote a blurb for Jessica's book, reading Walker Percy's novels. So Dr. Wood asks, what are the two or three texts that you keep returning to, Mm. never outgrowing them, but seeking to probe their depths afresh? Yeah, fantastic. Um, Augustine's Confessions, Mm -hmm. Dante's The Divine Comedy, and Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. Those are my top three. They have formed me the most by far for what it means to live a faithful life. And, um, and those are the ones that I wish I could teach every single year of my life over and over again because no matter how much I read them, I learn from them. So 100 yes. Days of Dante, I don't know if you know about this. Uh, 100 Days of Dante, the largest I've reading heard, group I've of Dante. It, There's 50,000 yeah. people right now signed up to read Dante wow. right now together. And you get, um, you get an email in your inbox every two days or so, and it gives you a different video. It's like 15 minutes on a canto. So that you can read the whole of the Divine Comedy with Tory Honors, with Baylor, wow. and with University of Dallas. So I'll be doing Canto 19, which is the only reason I'm bringing it up. Because I'm reading Canto 19. I've published on Canto 19. I've taught the Divine Comedy a dozen times. So I've read yes. it at least a dozen times. And, and I'm reading like, this and I'm again. like, <laughs> I, well, yeah, because I'm digging in and I'm like, whoa. Yeah. I just learned again. I just learned again from this Canto that I've read so many times and know, should know so well. And yet I'm learning from it. And I think that's the experience with these great texts is they continue to teach us. I have not learned all I need to learn from those texts. Yes. Beautiful. Well, I want to open it up to our live studio audience. (laughs) I think we have time for maybe one question. Does anybody have a question for Jessica? So as a Christian writer and a Christian author, how do you approach like promoting yourself and the business side of being an author Um, How do you balance those two and integrate them? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, And it's not one that I have a a full answer. It's one that I am meditating on all the time. And I think it's one that what I am learning from the process of asking that question is that you have to keep asking it. Because if you ever stop asking it, you may have fallen into a trap 
of only focusing on one part of it, which is a problem. Um, and, and the reason I asked the question, and I really have been thinking about it a lot, especially with this book that's coming out this March, because it's a trade book for me, right? So there's a ton of pressure to make sure that it sells. Now, do I care anything about the money off the book? No, because I, I've worked in the academy for a long time. I make no money, and that's great. I like I so I I'm not driven by that. I mean my current my current job is at, you know, partially at University of Dallas. Like it's not a money-making thing that I've ever lived for or done for. So that's not the point. But there is a tension because do I want the book to sell a lot of books? Yes, for two reasons. One because a publisher is invested in this and so if they are going to think that these kinds of books are worth producing, if we're going to produce better books versus trash, then we have to show it in sales because that's what they respond to. So in one instance, yes, because I want to show that there's a market so that the people come after me who publish these same kinds of books, I can say, okay, look at so-and-so that's writing this. You can believe it will sell, right? And I want to be able to do that even after I'm gone, even after my books are done, that that's part of the market. So that's one of it. The other is I wrote I wrote my heart in this book and and I do want it to bear fruit. Now, can the Lord bear fruit even after I'm gone and somebody find this book in a bookstore and they're the only person that ever read it? Yes. And I completely believe that. So I don't judge God's uh, success in this world by his numbers or what I can see, right? And so there's that's where the tension is, is having to make sure that um, we are creating a market that shows we care about good things. And also making sure that I trust that whatever God does with a book, he does with a book. And I did the best I could to not bury my talents in the sand, but that there was a return on the investment. And so I think in dealing with that question, I'm constantly, I'm praying over Matthew 25 all the time. I'm trying to understand what that looks like. Um, I will say one thing that I've noticed recently is a lot of people, um, especially young people, have been saying like they need to build a following so that someone trusts that they have something to say and then they will say it. Whereas I, I really believe this, at least right now in 2021, this is what I believe. Um, and the Lord, I'm an in-process creature. So, you know, <laughs> I may not believe this in 10 years. But, but as of right now, I do believe that if you pour yourself into the work, into the thing that will last and the thing that will matter, that is going to create its own following in the invisible kingdom of God no matter whether it shows itself in a visible reality or not, that will last. What you have made in some way, like we looked at Leaf by Niggle, in some way it will last. The following may wane or not or create or explode or whatever. That all might change, but the work will always be the good that's worth investing in. Jessica, you have two books coming out in the near future. Mm -hmm. We've mentioned them briefly. Um, could you just give us uh, a brief synopsis of what those two books are and where we can get them? If sure. Like to. <laughs> so in March, The Scandal of Holiness, Renewing Your Imagination in the Company of Literary Saints. And this was really an investigation that started when I lived abroad. I lived in Prague. I did this Fulbright for Charles University. And I just found that um, all the Czech people noticed almost instantly how American I was. Um, but in the most atheist country in Europe, they were not recognizing at all 
my Christianity. There was nothing that people were saying like, you must be holy. Like you, like you must love the Lord and I want some of that. And I thought, well, that's what I always thought, you know, being a missionary in some sense was, is that people responded to like, I want what she has. And mm-hmm. I thought, well, well then what do I need to be doing? <laughs> like, how can I be living differently so that everyone around me says like, I want what she has. Like, that's the whole point of our yeah. lives. And so I just started wrestling with holiness mm-hmm. And I have spent the last, uh, that that was 2013, Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've spent the last uh, seven years, just eight years, wrestling with what it means to be holy, So and looking at literature to find my answers. Um, Literature, again, that that imitates the scripture and tries to live out the word in those stories. So that's that one. Um, And then the other one is is partially what we've been talking about. It's learning the good life, and it's a reader in which it's uh, texts that show a diverse human tradition and not a Western tradition. And it's a text from a Christian perspective Mm -hmm. and every introduction to the great text says, this is what it means to be a Christian learner. And that's what you'll learn from this text. And here's some discussion questions to help you wrestle what it means to be a Christian learner in the world from this text. Yeah. And so we do include, you know, Lao Tzu and Confucius and Frederick Douglass and W.B. Du Bois and Flannery O'Connor, right? Virginia Woolf, Toni Morrison. So it's a collection um, that is just a lot more open than collections we've found in the past for, for what it means to be a good, a great books reader, you know? That's wonderful. So, yeah. If any listeners have any further questions for you, yeah. or if they want to just learn more about your work, what sure. would be the best place or way for them to do that? Absolutely. Well, um, I do believe that there is a classroom out there, and so that's what I'm hoping for. And so if people want to connect, then um, I would follow me at Hooten Wilson Twitter, and then um, also you can email me. I'm findable. I have a website, jessicahootenwilson.com. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. It's kind of like my blackboard space for my classroom. Uh, so yes, those are the easiest ways to find me, but I am a teacher. So please send questions and have a conversation with me. Like I completely invite that. Yes. I love that. Excellent. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for being a guest on Forefront 360. Let's have a round of applause. So for those of you who are listening, um, please do be sure to pre-order Jessica's upcoming books, The Scandal of Holiness and Learning the Good Life, Wisdom from Great Hearts and Minds. And thank you again to the Anselm Society for facilitating this podcast recording. Thank you, Wayne. Mm -hmm. Round of applause for Wayne. And remember to go to imaginationredeemed.com to learn more or get access to their conference sessions. If you liked this podcast, be sure to subscribe to Forefront 360. We're on your favorite podcast app. And let us know what you thought of the episode. Give us your feedback over on Instagram at ForefrontFest or on Twitter as well. Until next time, keep pursuing authentic faith and excellent art.